are you? Really great to see you. I have been so looking forward to being back in Colorado for some beautiful springtime weather. <laughs> and that's not working out really, but uh, anyway, it's great to see you. Hey, it's not only springtime, but it's tax time again. I know that you're really excited about that. I sense a wave of joy in the place, as I mentioned taxes. One writer said, it's tax time again, Americans. Time to gather up those receipts, get out those tax forms, sharpen up that pencil, and stab yourself. <laughs> Probably not the best advice, really. But we're drawing to the end of this Eyewitness News series. We finish next weekend. This weekend, we're in Mark chapter 15, which uh, begins with the trial and interrogation of Jesus. And the reason I mention taxes is because it's an often overlooked fact that taxes, specifically tax avoidance or evasion, uh, was part of the trial. It was actually part of the deal uh, that was going on there. Things were building to a crescendo. The Jewish leaders really now wanted to get rid of Jesus. They'd had him arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane, but now what to do with him? Because they were powerless, those Jewish leaders. They were, they were living under the heel of the Roman authorities. They had no power to try Jesus in a court or to uh, certainly to execute him. And so they went cap in hand to Pontius Pilate. Pilate, uh, here's a statue of him, the fifth Roman governor, of Judea. This guy was the only person who, could, who had the authority to pass a death sentence, and he was a harsh man. Jewish historians Josephus and Philo, they describe him as cruel and malicious. He hated the Jews, and they returned the favor. They hated him too. He plundered the temple treasury to build an aqueduct. He he scattered Roman images around the city of Jerusalem deliberately to offend the Jews. Uh, they hated him, and ultimately they complained to Rome so much about Pilate that they got him fired and sent back to Rome. So there was no love lost. But right now, these Jewish leaders needed Pilate because they wanted to get rid of Jesus. The question was this, what's the charge on the charge sheet? Blasphemy is not going to work because the Romans worship many gods. So Pilate's going to say, who cares? He can worship who he wants. Instead, uh, they came up with a, uh, a double charge of treason and tax evasion. Uh, and in Luke 22, we get a bit of an insight about that. They began to accuse him, saying, we have found this man subverting our nation. He opposes payment of taxes to Caesar and claims to be Messiah, a king. In other words, they're saying, this man is a subversive revolutionary, he is a threat to the Roman Empire, and not only that, he doesn't do the tax thing. Now, before we look closer at this, a couple of things we need to understand about Mark's gospel. First of all, Mark, in writing about this, he wants us to ask ourselves the question, what would we do with Jesus? There's this phrase that occurs throughout Mark's gospel, handed over to. In the episode we're going to study together, Jesus is handed over to Pilate. Pilate hands him over to Herod. Herod hands him back to Pilate. Pilate hands him over to the crowd. This is all about 
Jesus being passed around. And, and Mark is saying to us, what would you do? What would I do if, I, if I'd been there that day? What would I do with Jesus? What will I do with Jesus now? Secondly, you'll notice that in Mark's gospel, he doesn't give us a lot of the gory details of the crucifixion. And it was a hideous death. But Mark doesn't give us a lot of that detail. And the reason for that is that Mark is more interested in the significance of the cross over the actual physiological details of actually what happened at the cross. He wants us to hear, if you will, words from the cross, cross words, the title of this message, so that we look at Jesus, ask what we would do with him, and then discover the significance of the events that took place that terrible day. So let's, let's dive in. First of all, let's see that Jesus is the suffering servant. He's the suffering servant. His self-control was expressed in silence. The suffering servant, as Isaiah puts it, his self-control expressed in silence. Verse 1. Very early in the morning, the chief priests with the elders, the teachers of the law, and the whole Sanhedrin made their plans. So they bound Jesus, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate. Are you the king of the Jews? asked Pilate. You have said so, Jesus replied. The chief priest accused him of many things. So again, Pilate asked him, aren't you going to answer? See how many things they're accusing you of. But Jesus still made no reply, and Pilate was amazed. Notice that word amazed. It's a word that frequently occurs in Mark's gospel. Amazement is a Markan theme. And the word here literally means dumbfounded. Pilate couldn't get over this. Jesus is on trial for his life, and he says nothing. Now, silence in a Roman court did not mean an admission of guilt. Nevertheless, these religious leaders are battering Jesus with falsehoods, and he doesn't say anything. And, and, and the whole thing is so unjust. First of all, there's this obscene irony. Look at this. They're accusing Jesus of being a political messiah, which was the very thing the crowds wanted him to become and the very thing he'd refused to do. They were looking for a military messiah who would overthrow the Romans, and he'd refused to do that. And now these religious leaders are accusing him of that. Not only that, there's this tax thing. Very clearly in Mark chapter 12, they tried to trap him with the question about taxes. And Jesus said, render to Caesar, give to Caesar what is Caesar's, give to God what is God's. Jesus had made it really clear where he stood on the issue of taxation. And now they are accusing him of the opposite. Not only that, but they met by night before they went to Pilate, which was illegal. So it's a kangaroo court with a trumped-up charge. And I'll tell you what, if, if I'd have been there, I think I'd have had to say something. I mean, don't you feel like that when, when someone takes something that you've said and twists it out of context, or they blatantly lie about you? Everything in you wants to speak up. Reminds me of a little girl I met once on an airplane. Uh, as a grandfather now, I have great sympathy uh, for parents of very small children who are traveling and they can't keep them quiet. You know what I'm talking about? 
You're on that plane for 10 hours. You're eating food that's been lovingly prepared by a demonized chef. And <laughs> the movie is boring. And there's this child, and they're screaming, and they're throwing things. And, 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 and people are... And, and they're thinking about showing the child the emergency exit. And it's getting, it's getting kind of ugly. And the parents are saying, look, shh, be, be quiet, be quiet. We're going to be on this plane for a long time. These people all hate us. And there's this wonderful moment when this child had been, had been uh, just agitated for about an hour. And finally, she, she threw her crayons and her coloring stuff on the, on the floor of the plane. And she just threw her head back and yelled out at the top of her voice, I just can't be quiet! <laughs> and sometimes I feel like that. You accuse me of something that I didn't do, I, I want to respond. But the, the epitome of self-control here, Jesus is quiet. Uh, before I go on, I need to do a little pastoral thing, which is kind of awkward, to be honest. I hate this stuff. We, we don't normally do this sort of thing in Timberline, but there's a member here in this service today who's been causing a whole lot of trouble. And we'd normally, we try, we'd been trying to take care of it, but it's just come to a head. And so now I have to publicly name you so that we can get this sorted and, and move on. So I, I'm, I'm going to name you now, so you, you better get ready. The name of this member that's caused so much trouble is the tongue which the Bible says is an unruly member. And great was the relief in the house. <laughs> but isn't it true? You can control all kinds of aspects of your life, and yet it's the tongue. You, you just say stuff, and you think, well, can I just take that back? And Jesus is self-controlled. Not only is he self-controlled, but he stands there as a servant. Pilate, Pilate says, look at the things they're, they're accusing you of. He's on the cross and passes by say, save yourself. Well, of course they do. That's the way of the world. Save yourself, number one. Charity belongs at home, doesn't it? Look after yourself. He who dies with the most toys wins. And actually, Jesus shows another way to gather a crowd, live like a servant. Do we need to think about what we're living for, who we're living for? I watched a documentary this week called Happy. It's a great movie, great film. They traveled around the world asking about happiness. How, how do people get happy? Here's what they discovered. If you primarily live your life for yourself, you will never be happy. True happiness, statistically proven, is discovered in selflessness, in sacrifice, in giving, in servanthood. It is not about me. And as we draw close to Easter and we think about Christ and the cross, he is silent, he is a servant. What do we learn from that? Is there a situation right now where we just need to quit talking? Is there a priority that we need to realign ourselves to? Or are we living on a desperate crusade for us? Secondly, Jesus is the selfless redeemer. 
He's the selfless redeemer. Treasure is brought out of tragedy. He's the selfless redeemer. Treasure is brought out of tragedy. Verse 16. The soldiers led Jesus away into the palace, that is the praetorium, and called together the whole company of soldiers. They put a purple robe on him, then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on him, and they began to call out to him, Hail, King of the Jews. Again and again they struck him on the head with a staff and spit on him. Falling on their knees, they paid homage to him. And when they'd mocked him, they took off the purple robe and put his own clothes on him. And then they led him out to crucify him. One of the worst moments of my life was the day I received a phone call from the hospital in the city where we were living in England at the time. And they said, we have your son here, and he has been beaten up, and he is in the emergency room. Our son was walking through the city and came across a bunch of guys. He recognized one of them from high school, so he made the terrible mistake of saying hi. And they were offended, so they set about him. They put him on the ground. They kicked him continuously. And he thought he was going to die. And he's lying on the ground, and they're kicking and they're punching. And a fifth man showed up. And my son thought that this guy had come to intervene to help him, and he cried out to him, please help me. And the guy laughed, stepped back, and kicked him full in the face. And now he's in the emergency room. I want you to know, I'm going to just be honest with you. When I got that phone call, I was, I'm ready to say, dear Lord, would you give me 35 minutes off? I mean, I jumped in the car and went looking for those guys. I do not know what I would have done if I'd found them. I just, of course, I'm a pastor. I just wanted to share Jesus with them. <laughs> Actually, to be honest, I wanted them to meet Jesus. <laughs> right there and then. And I was willing to participate in helping them. I was mad because there is something so profoundly ugly about a, a group of people. Violence is ugly anyway, but the, this kind of mob mentality. They called the whole company of soldiers. Some say 200, others say 600. This is a lynching. Mark gives us a detail that's easy to miss. He says again and again they beat him and they spit on him. There's something terrifyingly ugly as well about the crowd dynamic. Years ago, sociologists developed a phrase called groupthink. And groupthink says that it's, po it's not possible. What happens is that a normally perfectly rational, moral human being, if you put them in the wrong group, they will do terrible things in that group that they would never do alone. There's something about the mob that happens. In fact, there's a, there's a theological rationale for that. It's called structural sin. Structural sin is the, the, is the truth that just as evil can inhabit a human being as an individual, so evil can inhabit a collectivity of relationships, a, 
a group, a gang, a mob, a corporation, a crowd, the Nuremberg rallies, something evil happening there, or the calm, cool, collective decision around a boardroom of a bunch of uh, confectionery chocolate executives who are making the candy that you and I eat. And they decide that half of the cocoa beans in the chocolate that you and I eat will be harvested in the Ivory Coast, and those harvests are taken care of by child slaves. And without any anger or venom, something happens in that boardroom that says, yes, that's okay. Or Hitler with his henchmen gather together at a beautiful retreat and sit around a table, these highly intelligent people, and they come up with the final solution which leads to the killing of millions of Jews. Something happened in the collectivity. And this is all so ugly. And then Mark says so coldly, then they led him out to crucify him. Earlier this week, I was in Australia speaking at a Salvation Army conference. And I had a day with some time, and I went to visit an old Australian prison. I went and they showed me the condemned cell. And then they said, you don't have to go in there if you don't want to, but this is where the gallows is. And I stepped into this room, and the noose is there. And I stood in a room about 30 foot long, 20 foot wide, the loneliest room I've ever been in my life, where in that room, 41 men and one woman was executed. You could feel the despair and the terror. It seeped into the atmosphere of the place. This is terrible stuff. This cross is a symbol of execution. This is a lynching. This is mob rule. This is horrible. But here's what I want us to see. Even though all of that was going on, God, who is the Redeemer, turned all of that around, and the ugliness was turned into the act that means that you and I today can be saved and forgiven. God broke into all of the ugliness and the blood and the sweat and today, because he's the one who turns it around, we're able to say, amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Because he's the God of the turnaround. I wonder if there are really ugly situations in our lives. Stuff that we need to bring to him and ask him to not only forgive us, but turn it around. Isn't it amazing that he can do that? The things that we can regret can become platforms of learning. Failure can become an academy. As we bring the ugliness, the raw ugliness, and we bring it to him. He's the redeemer who brings treasure out of tragedy. It might be that there's tragedy in your life and it's not got anything to do with anything you've done. Tragedy has hit your life and your family. And I would not dare to make light of it or make a statement that is cliched. 
But on the authority of Scripture, I say to you, if we bring the things to him that he was not the architect of, he can still be the redeemer who brings something beautiful, even out of something so horrible. He's the redeemer. Thirdly, Jesus is the selfless savior. He's a selfless savior, abandoned that we might be reconciled. Selfless savior, abandoned that we might be reconciled. Verse 33, at noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And when some of those standing near heard this, they said, listen, he's calling Elijah. Someone ran, filled a sponge with wine vinegar, put it on a staff and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down, he said, with a loud cry. Jesus breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the son of God. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There's a sense here in which Jesus is participating in the human condition as he's experiencing a sense of abandonment. Isn't it true? Can I just be ever so honest? that there are times when we feel close to God, and isn't it true that there are times when we don't feel close to God, and he's kind of quiet, and we come to worship, but frankly, we don't feel like it. Is it just me that experiences those things, or it happens, doesn't it? I mean, I'm jet-lagged. I was in my office at 4.30 this morning, and when I awoke at 4 a.m., I did not, my eyes flipping open, I did not do a triple backflip out of bed, catching my tambourine as I flew through the air. I did land in my cowboy boots. Hallelujah! I did cry to my wife who was still asleep. Glory to God. Wake up, sister. Let us rejoice together. Oh, praise the Lord, she did cry. Hand me a tambourine that I might also headbutt it. Sometimes I don't feel like being a Christian, and I don't feel close to God, and that's all right. Because worship's not about doing what you feel. Your feelings are not the barometer of your spirituality. Worship is about aligning yourself with what is true and declaring it. Let me make a statement that might shock some of you. I am not in love with Jesus. Hold those stones. I love Jesus. I am not in love with him. There's only one person on this planet that I'm in love with. That's my wife. I am in love with her. I love my children, but I am not in love with them. It's a different kind of love. I love Jesus, but I am not in love with him. I don't have to try and fold my soul into continuous emotional feelings in order to worship him or feel guilty if they're absent. I love Jesus. But I am not in love with him. And when you look at the Bible definition of love, it's got a lot more to do with faithfulness and obedience than it has to do with feelings that come and go. So if you're sitting here today and you, you're thinking, I, didn't, I really didn't feel like this. I must be a terrible sinner. No, you're just, you're just a member of the human race. Not only is there a sense of abandonment here, but there's faith as well. Because you see, Jesus cries out, my God, my God, 
Why have you forsaken me? Now you say, how is that a statement of faith? Let me explain. Let's imagine that I suddenly get sick right now. Don't pray for it to happen. That's wrong. But I just get sick. And they take me, just imagine, it's, it's 10.45 uh, on Sunday morning. Actually, you don't have to imagine that because it is 10.45 on Sunday morning. And I get sick. They take me to the hospital and they say, uh, Jeff, you're very sick. You have about 10 minutes to live. So you better get some things sorted out. And I'm lying there and I'm thinking about, I'm thinking about my family and I'm thinking about England, the green hills of England. It's green because it rains a lot. Thinking about my grandkids. Thinking about the fact that I won't see them again. And I think of a song that reminds me of England. God save our gracious queen. Long live our noble queen. God save our queen. You're thinking, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, that sounds like my country, tis of thee. It is, you stole the song. That's, uh, <laughs> that's all right, we're over that. God save our queen. And then I die. And you're glad I died because it means I'm going to quit singing right now. So I, I get that. And someone walks by and they say, what's that, what's that guy, the, the guy that just died, what's he say? Something about saving some queen somewhere. See, they don't really understand the implications of what I'm saying because they don't know how the song ends or what the song is really all about. Well, it's the same is true with my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's a quote from Psalm 22, which ends in triumph. Let me read you a few words written a thousand years before Jesus hung on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish? My God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer by night, but I find no rest. I am a worm and not a man, scorned by everyone, despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord, they say. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him, since he delights in him. Dogs surround me. A pack of villains encircles me. They pierce my hands and my feet. All my bones are on display. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. But you, Lord, do not be far from me. You are my strength. Come quickly to help me. And then it ends with this, Psalm 22. Posterity will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord. They will proclaim his righteousness, declaring to a people yet unborn... He has done it, the psalm ends. And then Jesus says, it is finished. You see, as he cries out from the cross, he's opening the way. And the, the curtain in the temple, which kept everyone out, is torn from top to bottom. And immediately the centurion speaks up and Forgive me, I, I love John Wayne and all that, but I don't think it was the greatest choice for the centurion in the movie because it sounded like the Roman soldier was from Texas, if you get my drift. Surely this man was the son of God. <laughs> yes, I know that was a horrendous impersonation. Look at this! 
the curtain is torn, and the first, I'm getting excited, the first person to make a declaration that Jesus is the Son of God is an outsider, a Roman, the enemy, a non-Jew, and we freeze the frame, and we go back to Mark's gospel, chapter 1, verse 1, where it says, the beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, the Son of God, and he dies, and the centurion says, yes, he is the Son of God. If you're not a Christian today, the curtain's been torn, the barrier's been ripped down, the way is open, you can come to Christ. That's why it's so important this Easter time that we invite friends next weekend, and then the following weekend, we're going to start a brand new series specifically designed to help us reach our friends after Easter. It's called Blockbusters. It's going to be based on some movie titles, asking the big questions of life that are being asked in our culture. Some of them are, are here. These are some of our themes. Inception, is there truth? Eat, pray, love. What is life all about? Les Miserables, what about forgiveness? Happy feet, can I be happy? The boy in the striped pajamas, what about pain and suffering? The day after tomorrow, where is the world headed? Freedom writers, where can I belong? Tremendous opportunity for us to invite friends. But I want to say, if you're not a Christian today, the way is open. The last point is this, fourthly. Jesus is the king like no other, inviting us into his kingdom. He's the king like no other, inviting us into his kingdom. Verse 25, it was nine in the morning when they crucified him. The written notice of the charge against him read, the king of the Jews. Verse 42, it was preparation day, that is the day before the Sabbath. So as evening approached, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent member of the council, who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, went boldly to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. Pilate was surprised to hear that he was already dead, summoning the centurion. He asked him if Jesus had already died, and when he learned from the centurion that it was so, he gave the body to Joseph. So Joseph brought some linen cloth, took down the body, wrapped it in the linen, and placed it in a tomb cut out of the rock. And then he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Notice how many times the word king is used in this passage, six times. And we read of this man who's looking for the kingdom of God. What's the kingdom of God? When we hear the term kingdom of God, we pray your kingdom come, we tend to think future only. We tend to think that that's about heaven. But it is, but it's not just about that, it's also about now. Because the kingdom of God is already here, but not fully here. It is now and not yet. The kingdom of God is simply a metaphor for living under the kingship of Jesus. If you're a follower of Jesus, you are in the kingdom of God. It's the main message of Jesus. Matthew uses that term 32 times. And something really interesting happens here because Joseph of Arimathea, this man was part of that group that had condemned Jesus to death but he'd voted against. He had been a secret disciple up until this day because of fear. But Joseph of Arimathea takes his own life into his hands, risking being associated with an executed traitor. And he goes to Pilate and he basically says, 
Give me the body. In other words, Joseph says, I'm with him. He fully identifies with King Jesus. But then something else happens. Because Pilate, the governor, the guy in control, when Joseph steps up, Pilate steps back. He takes a bowl. He washes his hands. It's where we get the term, I'm washing my hands of him. Not my responsibility. You see, Joseph steps up and says, I'm with him. And Pilate says, I'm washing my hands of him. As I was preparing this message, I suddenly remembered that just a few hours earlier, somebody else took a towel and a bowl. It was Jesus. The night before at the Last Supper, he took water. <laughs> and he didn't wash his hands of his disciples who were about to desert him. But he washed their feet. You see, there's a sense in which you can either wash your hands of Jesus or you can allow him to wash you. Now, in a few moments, we're going to do something we don't, we don't often do at Timberline. We often ask for a response and invite people to raise their hands. But this weekend, as I look at Joseph stepping up, I felt challenged to invite a response that would mean that if you're going to respond to what I'm asking here, in a few moments, when I ask, not now, but in a few moments, I'm going to ask you to stand to your feet if you're physically able. And here's what I'm asking about. First of all, in a few moments, and I'm only going to ask once, simply because we want this to be a something that comes as the fruit of response, not some kind of extended coercion. In a few moments, I'm going to ask you to stand to your feet if, if you're a Christian, but it's been kind of secret and unclear and vague, and yeah, I go to Timberline, but it's time now for you to clearly say publicly, I'm with him. If that's true of you, a little later, in a few moments, I'm going to ask you to respond. I'm going to ask you to respond in a few moments if you know today that you need Jesus to wash you. And we all need cleansing from sin, but some of us specifically know that we've come here today and we really need his cleansing. In a moment, I'm going to ask you to stand. And, and then I'm going to ask you to stand if you'd like to become a Christian today. You may not understand what all this is about, but you just know that today, as you look at what Christ has done for you, for me on the cross, you want to say, from now on, I want to be with him. I want to be a Christian. So here's the moment. I promise that I only ask once. 
you want to respond to any of those, can I invite you just to quietly stand to your feet if you're able? Do it right now as a way of having some clarity. If you're not a Christian and you're making this stand today because you want to become a Christian, why don't you say something like this in your heart to Jesus? Let's pray. Jesus, I want to be with you. I'm with you. I want you to take charge of my life. I want you to be my king. I want to be in your kingdom. Wash me, cleanse me, forgive me, take charge. I invite you now into my life. Save me, be my savior. Thank you for hearing my prayer. We pray for any, Lord, who have just prayed that prayer. Reveal yourself to them. We pray for those who are standing because they need the water of your cleansing, which is possible because of your blood. Wash us, cleanse us. For those who are standing because it's been kind of secret, vague, and there's a clarity about what we're doing today. We ask you, Jesus, to take this moment and make it more than a moment. That as we respond to your word publicly, that your grace will be ours. We agree together in Jesus' name. Everyone said amen. You know what, we've, uh, we've looked together at some very... Obviously, it's a very sobering and a very serious, serious episode today. Isn't it amazing just to look around, though? And I believe that in the last few minutes, because Jesus was working and is working, because, all right, it's not Easter yet, but let it be known, he's not dead anymore. He is raised to life. And today in this place, people have come to know him for the first time. They've stood up and said, I'm with him. They've asked for his cleansing. So could we put our hands together and give thanks to him for what he's done and what he's doing? Lord, we bring our hosannas to you, our gratitude and thanks, our worship and praise, crucified Christ and yet risen Christ. We pray again for each one who's responded today. Bless and strengthen them. And as we go into this new week, we pray that you will enable us by grace to live lives that say with clarity with him. Do it, Lord, we pray, by your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. Have a wonderful weekend. Please drive safely. The snow has not gone. The sun is out. It's Colorado. God bless you. Great to see you.